Welcome to the Social Policy Connections audio podcast. The following podcast features a lecture delivered by Mark Purcell at Social Policy Connections Australia Aid Global Development Public Forum held at the Study Centre of the Yarra Theological Union on August the 17th, 2011. Mark is the current Executive Director of the Australian Council for International Development. The Australian Council for International Development represents 70 Australian not-for-profit aid and development organisations. Mark has been Advocacy Manager with Oxfam Australia from 2004 to 2009 and previously Executive Officer with Melbourne's Catholic Commission for Justice, Development and Peace. He has been Country Program Manager for Africa for Australian Volunteers International covering 13 countries in southern and eastern Africa. And now, Mark Purcell. Thank you, Bruce. And I'd too like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the land, of the people of the land we're meeting on tonight, and their elders past, present and future. Uh, I'd also like to thank Bruce and Social Policy Connections for inviting me tonight to talk a little bit about the Australian Aid Program, Attitudes Towards Aid. And what I thought I'd do tonight is, is talk first a little bit about politics uh, currently uh, affecting attitudes towards the Aid Program. Then I'd like to talk about the broader global context in which the Australian Aid Program is having to take account and develop. And then I'll talk specifically about the review that's just been completed of the Australian Aid Program by the government and what its main, main recommendations are. Um, I should say I don't work for the government. Uh, as Bruce mentioned, my organisation, uh, ACFID, is the umbrella body for not-for-profit aid and development organisations, of which Caritas uh, is a member, Margaret Fife is here tonight, and uh, therefore our members are primarily mission-driven uh, in alleviating poverty, and I'm sure many of you uh, have uh, contributed to the work of those agencies over the years. But tonight, I'm happy to ask, answer questions about NGOs at the end, but I'll, I'll, I'll really keep my comments to the official government aid program tonight. Let's begin with the politics. Back in November last year, Talkback Radio in Sydney uh, went feral over an announcement by Prime Minister Julia Gillard that nearly $500 million from the Australian Aid Program was going to be given to schools in Indonesia. And the program in Indonesia around schooling is primarily to uh, get kids into schools, particularly in remote provinces. Uh, they're building schools, so there's about 2,000 new schools are going to be built. And the number of students that would uh, go into these schools as a result of Australian assistance is estimated to be about 300,000 over four years. Uh, additionally, they're supporting the education of teachers and particularly they're trying to get teachers into uh, teacher training colleges and madrasa where it's considered a moderate form of Islam is, is um, practised and, and taught. So all in all, a worthwhile program, but the the vitriol that came out uh, on 2UE and 2GB in Sydney was something to, to behold. And uh, we were visiting parliamentarians in November to, to talk about the aid program, and we had several Labor politicians saying, "Look, you know, we like, you know, we hear what you're saying about, you know, scaling up the aid program and all that, but really, you know, it's uh, we, we need some arguments around, uh, you know, why why we should have this aid program and why we should be increasing it because I can tell you the punters don't like it." And we thought, mm, okay, that's not, not too good. Anyway, as with Talkback Radio, these, these little uh, explosions died down and we went into the Christmas season and New Year and it seemed to have passed until uh, the immediate wake of the Queensland floods. And you might recall at that time, in February this year, the debate was around how do we fund the cost of recovery? And the government announced a, uh, a levy to basically resource the, uh, the the recovery, so it wouldn't eat into the budget budget uh, uh, surplus that they're aiming to get in 20, 2013. While they were doing this, One Nation Queensland started an email campaign 
It was anonymous and it went around the country uh, on email and it particularly targeted politicians, federal politicians and particularly coalition politicians. And the, the, the line in the, 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 the email is basically, I'll, I'll quote it, one nation challenges the commitment of the federal government when Gillard has the capacity to redirect billions in foreign aid to our own desperately needed flood relief efforts. If this doesn't make your blood boil, nothing will. Then it listed the top eight countries that Australian government gives your taxpayer money to and tallies up the total. And then said, and now Gillard will give 500 million for Indonesia's Islamic schools, where, uh, which have produced terrorists in Indonesia, such as Abu Bakar al-Bashir. So, ask your local member, how come 22 Queensland flood victims only get $1 million? Uh, it's imperative that we have a complete overhaul to our entire system uh, and ensure, ensues forthwith placing Australians first with all funding, government funding. This is criminal. Uh, enough is enough, and so on and so on. Anyway, this was hitting hard, particularly in, uh, with coalition members. And as the coalition party, remember, the, the, the Shadow Expenditure Review Committee met to discuss how they would uh, fund uh, the recovery in Queensland, uh, this, this One Nation email campaign started to take on a life of its own. What happened is that a report was leaked in the West Australian media that Julie Bishop was out of the country and very, very unhappy that uh, it had been reported in the party room that cuts were going to be made to the coalition's uh, budget and it was going to be targeting aid to Africa. Uh, and she didn't approve of this. She came back to the country and there was, by that time, a starting to be a bit of a, a public campaign to say to the coalition, please don't cut, cut aid. The coalition was trying to demonstrate its fiscal muscle and show that it was more robust, it could make the hard economic decisions, whereas a weak, wishy-washy government was mismanaging and taxing us, uh, the, the, the long-suffering population of Australia more to, to fund the recovery. So when she came back into the country, suddenly Africa was off and the coalition then announced that they were cutting aid to Indonesia, particularly to this schools program. Uh, it was done with a, 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 um, an interesting tone because the coalition's official policy is one of bipartisan support for scaling up the aid program to 0.5 of gross national income by 2015. So both parties have this position. They agreed to it in 2007. And what they said is that they would suspend aid to Indonesian schools until uh, there was evidence that terrorism uh, was being prevented by these programs, which if you think about it is quite a, a weird logic. <laughs> However, uh, while Labor then started to capitalise on this internal uh, dissension within the coalition between uh, the shadow foreign affairs spokesman, Julie Bishop, and apparently Joe Hockey and Tony Abbott. Uh, it, it raised real issues, though, about the bipartisan commitment to scaling up aid, but more generally about the depth of understanding and support within the federal parliament for development assistance. Let's contrast with the UK. In the UK, despite the really, really drastic situation they are in terms of uh, funding the budget of that country, there has been a bipartisan commitment to legislate for 0.7, which is, as you may be aware, is the UN official goal for aid, uh, instituted this year. So quite an extraordinary, given the context in the UK where they're slashing and burning uh, services across the country, that there is this this commitment and cross-party support for, or tri-party support for maintaining the aid program. What's the origin of the bipartisanship in Australia? Well, to, to look at that, we need to step back and go back some years to uh, 2000. In 2000, world leaders met in New York at the Millennium Summit and created what is now known as the Millennium Development Goals, which are eight goals for, which are aimed in different thematic areas, ultimately to help halve global poverty by 2015. Now, these goals were designed, uh, built on 
previous uh, agendas of the UN to alleviate poverty. And Australia signed on to them at that time, as many governments did, without any real dollar commitment. But by 2005, the mood had changed. In, in 2005, there was a five-year review to see how was progress being made. And internationally, there was a lot of pressure from NGOs uh, to lift the level of aid, to honour the pledge made in 2000, to cancel debt of highly indebted poor countries. And John Howard, feeling very confident about the budgetary situation in Australia, the mining revenues coming in, felt that Australia could make, make a commitment. You might recall that the Make Poverty History campaign started this time and people were wearing wristbands everywhere uh, as, as a sign of support. The churches became very, very active through uh, the sister campaign called Micah Challenge. And at that summit in 2005, John Howard made the single largest increase in Australian aid ever. Uh, it was uh, to increase by $2 billion by 2010. So it was a, a reflection of the fact that in Australia, but also elsewhere in the world, we were in good economic times. And in fact, Australia wasn't the only country promising to increase its aid, but governments came together in the G8 in Glen Eagles in that year and agreed to cancel the debt of 33 highly indebted poor countries so they could channel those repayments into debt uh, that have been incurred over many, many decades back into budgets for education and health. And globally, the commitments to aid increased. There were meetings subsequently to for donors to better coordinate their aid. And it was generally considered a resounding success. In Australia, the momentum from the Make Poverty History campaign gathered and it went, the campaign continued, and in 2007, aid for the first time in many years was a, an important, if minor, an election issue. And in fact, both parties pledged to 0.5. Kevin Rudd, as a opposition leader, made this promise. And when he won an allowance slide, he, I think to the uh, astonishment of his cabinet colleagues, said, we're doing this. And so really the, the uh, commitment to 0.5, that scale-up of the aid program, is really being driven by the current foreign minister. So instituting a scale-up of that size means that effectively the Australian aid program is set to double from about $4.3 billion currently to about depending on the size of the economy in 2015-16, that budget year, to about eight or nine billion dollars. To put that in perspective, it's about one and a half percent currently of the entire annual federal budget, which is about 350 billion dollars. So it's, it is a lot of money, but it's, it's relative to the, the entire budget. Scaling up the aid program by that amount uh, presents a lot of challenges. And I want to turn now to the global context for the aid program, Australia's aid program, that goes ahead in coming decades, and just look at the, the big global picture. A key feature of the world we live in now is the historic shift of global wealth from developed economies to some developing economies. And we're all aware of the rise of the, the so-called BRICS, Brazil, Russia, India, China, South Africa. And the fact that China is now the second largest economy in the world. The rise of these economies has meant that... This, the, the rise of these economies is, is actually means that it's the single largest driver of poverty alleviation in the world, the economic development occurring in these countries. And a very interesting paper that's just come out earlier this year by a chap called Andy Summer at the Institute of Development Studies in the UK, Sussex University, argues that the so-called bottom billion of the world's poorest no longer reside necessarily in least developed countries. And so what he does is he looks at 
middle-income countries uh, and World Bank definition of just under $1,000 US per person per G the gross domestic product per year. And he, he says this, that this is pretty arbitrary, you know, that, that saying that's middle income, but he takes that definition. And what it shows is that uh, over the last 20 years, there's been a movement from where 90% of the world's poor lived in least developed countries to where 72% of the world's poorest 1 billion people now live in these countries. And what this, this table shows is the numbers of millions of people living in middle-income countries. And you can see that India is by far the largest, which is perhaps no surprise because we're familiar with uh, some of the abject poverty there, but 456 million people. China, 208 million people. Um, so all of these countries, Nigeria, Bangladesh, Indonesia, all have substantial powerhouse economies that mean that there is a rising middle class, uh, that there is a lot of wealth. Some of them, such as China and India, have in recent years embarked upon their own overseas aid programs. And yet, there is entrenched poverty in many of those countries. And this... this throws up a lot of interesting questions for aid programs for donors like, for, of countries like Australia. Because, yes, there is still need in least developed countries, no doubt, but there's, there's less need relative to the need in these middle-income countries. And these countries have resources and capacity and government systems which, over time, should enable them, if directed and applied uh, judiciously, to lift more of their people out of extreme poverty. And so the type of aid that you might be giving in the future may not be the same as if you're directing it to East Timor, for example, if you're going to give aid to India. Because you'll be looking at, uh, for example, strengthening the revenue collection capacity of governments in these countries, for example, so that they can tax their, their people more effectively and take those tax revenues and put them into services for their people, for example. So very, very significant and interesting uh, time that we're living in. Let's look at some of the other uh, shifts. Now, sorry, this might be a bit hard on the eyes. Um, so I'll, I'll just speak to some of the points here. Um, uh, internationally, as I mentioned, there's a whole range of new donors. The Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation is uh, equal to about half of the OECD donors and what it donates each year. Uh, so private philanthropy, private flows of uh, development assistance through NGOs as well. Uh, in Australia, the, the not-for-profit sector uh, raises about... $850 million from public donations. And when you put other sources of income on that, uh, from the government, from other uh, overseas sources, it's about $1.4 billion. So private flows of income uh, into aid are now, by some calculations, equal to all the official donors. The new donors, China, uh, India, that the way that they deliberate is not without problems because they say, well, we're not part of the club of OECD countries. We're doing this because we're a developing country as well. So we understand the, the situation of our brothers and sisters in the South and we uh, therefore don't put conditions on our aid in the same way as uh, the West does. Now, on the surface of it, this looks a pretty attractive deal. So, for example, Hun Sen, the Premier of uh, Cambodia, was very, very pleased in 2006 when China came in and gave $600 million in assistance to Cambodia, which was equal to all the other donors put together. And he said, we like Chinese aid because it doesn't come 
with all the strings attached that Western aid comes with. Programs about good governance, women's empowerment, environmental standards. China's aid comes generally aligned with their foreign policy objectives, and in this, it's no different from Australia's aid program or any other country. But the way that it's op operationalised is quite different. Generally, there'll be a big picture announcement by Chinese premier or uh, leading politician in a developing country, and often China holds uh, almost like fairs where they come into a region of Africa and invite countries in the region to come, and they dole out largesse. In return, they are asking that the, their aid be orientated towards resource extraction. So they will say, right, we want to build, invest and build a mine in uh, this part of your country. We'll build the roads, we'll build the port, we'll build a hospital along the way. And for developing country governments, they can't get enough of this. They think it's fantastic. Because too often, uh, in recent times anyway, Western aid has been tied towards those programs I talked about around trying to reduce corruption or trying to uh, empower women's leadership into parliament. But what leaders in many developing countries want are bricks and mortar. They, they want to see the infrastructure to be able to show to their people, yes, their country is developing. And so this is a good deal. For China, it's a good deal too, of course. Uh, the programs are often delivered by state-owned enterprises, of which there are many thousands throughout China. And it's not without significant problems because they will come over and uh, build uh, the infrastructure, but they'll often bring unskilled labour from a rural province in southern China into a country where there is a lot of unemployed people that are looking for work and they're keen to learn skills. And so the transfer of skills is very poor in many cases. Uh, unfortunately, in the case of uh, mining and some other sectors, often the very poor occupational health and safety conditions that Chinese workers endure are also exported into developing countries. And so you're starting to see protests in countries like Zambia in the mines there, and you're seeing the issue being politicised. So there's also increased scrutiny on aid programs and debates about effectiveness. Initially, this started with coordination of donors. So take a small Pacific island, for example. You've got um, Nauru or Kiribati. You might only have three people in the government there responsible for dealing with aid donors. But you'll have Australia, New Zealand, the Japanese, the Chinese, the European Union, the Americans. And so for small countries, or countries with weak government capacity, having multiple donors come in, all with their different reporting needs and different foreign policy objectives, is actually quite overwhelming and not very sensible or rational use of resources. And so a lot of effort has been going in at the donor level to try and harmonise and coordinate more effectively. That to say, it's still a, a work in progress. There's a lot, lot more to be done. But there's also increased public questioning of aid. And so in recent years, you've had uh, uh, people like Dambisa Moyo, a uh, Zambian stockbroker, who has questioned the whole premise of aid and argued much more for a, an economic rationalist model of trickle-down and creating uh, an entrepreneurial culture. Developing countries shouldn't be aid recipients, mendicants, she argues. She suggests that, no, rather they should be setting up their own stock exchanges and creating wealth that way. You've had uh, people like Paul Collier, who wrote the book called The Bottom Billion, um, arguing that uh, the whole planning, the planned nature of aid is ineffective and doesn't deal with the realities on the ground and there needs to be a much more creative and different approach. You've got your Jeffrey Sachs in America as well, arguing uh, uh, different ways that aid could be more, more effective. 
And so, in general, it's a very healthy, lively, international and domestic debate about well, what is effective aid, uh, what, what works, what doesn't work. Some people argue that, drawing from science theory, that we really don't know what works at all. And you actually you need random experiments in aid to actually test and see if it works, then invest in it. If it doesn't, scrap it. But having rigid notions about what's, what uh, aid programs should be isn't a useful way to go about planning and delivering aid anymore because of the complexity. Looking ahead into the, the world of the future, what, what type of world is aid trying to achieve? What are the challenges that all of us are going to face on this, this ever-shrinking planet? I want to take another step up and look at the very big picture challenges in the coming decades down to 2050. And you, you probably be familiar with some of these from the media in recent times. But just consider this, that assuming that we'll, we'll, we'll stumble through the wake of the global economic crisis, financial crisis, and economic recovery resumes slowly at 2 to 3% each year, and that, that occurs with other economies around the world too in the coming, coming years. If it just economic growth just keeps increasing 3% each year, it will outpace population growth over the next four decades. Between 1950 and the year 2000, the global economy grew five times. So it's five times larger now, the global economy, than it was in, in 1950. If it continues to grow at the same rate, it will be 80 times bigger in 2100 than it was in 1950. But can anyone really imagine a world with an economy that large? The, type, the consumerism. If, if all of those people in those um, new economies that I just talked about are consuming at the same rate that we consume, is the world sustainable on that basis? Then there is the inequality. The point I should have emphasised more around the middle income countries and the fact that the world's poor are now located predominantly in those middle-income countries, of course, is the inequality. A fifth of the world's population currently just earn 2% of global income. The richest 20%, by contrast, earn 74% of the world's income. So, really, we need aid policies, in fact, not just aid, but trade, foreign affairs, economic policy, social policy, to tackle inequality in all countries, meaningfully. Otherwise, that, that gap will only be exacerbated. The challenge of climate change, you know, I'm sure you're all very familiar with, but just one, one statistic that scientists estimate that global atmospheric... Sorry, that the International Panel on Climate Change argues that the limit on carbon dioxide that needs to be achieved uh, if we're to have a chance of keeping temperatures in the world below 2 degrees, uh, that limit is about 450 parts per million of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. Now, global atmospheric concentrations of carbon dioxide are currently at 435 million parts per million. So, scientists are arguing that if you want a 75% chance of staying below 2 degrees, the global economy can only afford to emit a total of 1,000 billion tonnes of CO2 between 2000 and 2050. Now, what they've also concluded, though, is that we've used up a third of that quota already by 2008. So we have very significant challenges. Population growth. Population globally will continue to increase and stabilise around about 2015, 2050. So currently it's about 6.83 billion and it will go to 9.15 billion by 2050. But much of that population growth will be in these developing countries, middle-income countries, and in fact 70% of it will occur within 24 countries, all of which are currently classified as low-income or lower-middle-income countries, which means about a, a, an average income of about $3,500 US. 
We've seen the problems that arise in our nearest neighbours in the Solomons and East Timor in the last decade with large youthful populations that are underemployed or uneducated and particularly in urban settings, the issues that arise with rioting. See that in the UK too this week. So that trend towards urbanising is going to be urbanisation is also going to accelerate. Back in 1950, 30% of the world's population lived in cities. By 2050, it will be 70%. So in Africa, the number of people living in cities currently will go from about 35% of the entire population in Africa to over 70%. So there'll be about 1 billion people. And increasingly, we're seeing the rise of megacities where there are multiple cities in different countries with, uh, over a, with a number of residents over a million each. So in Pakistan, you have eight cities of over a million, 12 in Mexico, in China, 100 cities with populations of a million or more. And many of those people living in cities are going to be living in slums. This is a real challenge for development economics and aid programming because historically particularly in the not-for-profit sector and NGOs, we've tended to focus in programs that reach out to rural communities. Now, the need will still be there to work with rural communities, but increasingly, we're going to have to be working with communities in slums. And in Brazil, the government has already, for many years now, been designing programs to try and lift people out of poverty in slums. And we might draw Margaret in question time just to talk about her recent trip there. And with some success, they're actually targeting uh, programs paying a basic payment to families, generally to female headed households, to the payment in return for sending their children to school and for having basic health treatment. So there's, there's opportunities as well to actually, when populations are concentrated, to, for governments to actually target programs more. Uh, there's obviously the economic opportunities that cities bring. And increasingly, we're going to see large flows of migration as well. And that's another trend that, again, by some estimates, some social scientists argue that the flows of remittances of people migrating, of refugee communities, and sending back money to their families in the countryside from cities or from developed countries to underdeveloped countries is equal to the entire flow of global, official global assistance development assistance aid. So what you can see is that aid is only going to be a very small part of the picture here. We're going to need other tools to facilitate the flow of that income. In the Pacific, a very simple thing that's been done in the past year by the Australian government is to work with Australian banks to actually reduce the cost of transferring money. For many years, uh, Pacific Islanders working in Australia and New Zealand had to rely on uh, Western Union to remit money. And so for every $100 that you might remit, it cost you 20 bucks. It's extortionate. So this is something that uh, in recent times there's been some, some engagement with the, the Australian banking system to, to reduce that cost of moving money, which is, which is good. We also need to reduce the barriers of movement of people as well because as we get that uh, demographic shift of rise of youthful populations in uh, developing countries and an ageing of populations in developed countries, the taxation base is going to shift in countries like Australia. and There's going to be more pressure on a, a smaller uh, workforce. And so migration is going to become increasingly important. For some years now, New Zealand has had a migrant, um, sorry, a, um, a, a temporary labour scheme where workers from Pacific Island countries come and work in the fruit industry. It's been very successful. It stands in stark contrast to a similar scheme that has been started more recently in Australia where it's been conspicuously unsuccessful uh, for a variety of reasons, which we, we, won't, we won't go into now. But merely to point out that these types of schemes are actually going to be very important in the future and offer a way 
of another way of Australia and developed countries like Australia assisting people in developing countries and meeting some of our needs by bringing in uh, youthful workforces who may be unskilled but are happy to do that unskilled labour and provide a flow of remittances back to their communities uh, for their benefit. And finally, uh, the other big trend and challenge is the increase in natural disasters and conflicts within countries. Now, it may be that statistics are becoming more accurate over the recent decades, but generally the UN show, UN agencies show a spike, an steady increase in the number of natural disasters occurring each year. That's primarily attributed to weather-related disasters. Some can be slow onset, like drought, as we're currently seeing in the Horn of Africa. Others can be sudden, like the, and not, not related to the weather, like the earthquakes and the tsunami. But certainly because of the increased populations in different settings, we're seeing higher numbers of people being affected by them. So, for example, in Haiti, in the earthquake there, the reason so many people were affected is because they were living in slums. They were living in shanty towns on the sides of mountains where uh, it was very marginal, they were prone to mudslide. So when the earthquake happened, all the houses collapsed. And they were densely crowded and the level of casualties was high. And so you, you're going to see this type of trend occurring. So these are the big picture challenges for the Australian Aid Programme. And I mentioned before that the government made that commitment to doubling the Australian aid program, but a key challenge was there wasn't really a plan for how to do it. And there was an increased public criticism and scrutiny of Australian aid, the negative attention being placed on uh, aspects of it, like the schools in Indonesia, a populist backlash against giving money to foreigners. And so... It was felt that it was needed, uh, that it was uh, required to have some sort of strategic framework and discussion about this commitment to scale up the Australian Aid Program. So in November last year, Kevin Rudd announced an independent review uh, of Australia's aid effectiveness. And he put Sandy Holway, who you might recall was the chair of the Sydney Olympics Committee, former diplomat in charge of it. He had an economist uh, from ANU, development economist. He had Margaret Reid, who is the former Liberal senator, uh, who headed, uh, was the president of the Senate. Uh, Bill Farmer, who most recently was Australia's ambassador to Indonesia, but the former head of the Department of Immigration. And a corporate lawyer head up this panel. And they had a six-month brief to look at what makes Australian aid effective? How can we scale up the Australian aid program? And their report came out last month. So I want to turn to that now and just talk a little bit about, in conclusion, what we were saying, NGOs, and what, what we felt needed to be done uh, in the face of these big picture challenges and what the government has responded with. From our point of view, what we saw with the Australian Aid Program was a number of problems. One was, while they have committed to working with Australian non-government organisations in recent years, and that's been very, very welcome, there's not really a clear model of change uh, uh, relating to communities and civil society in developing countries. And what do I mean by that? Um, for those of you that know your political science and know Alexis de Tocqueville, who was the French social scientist who went to America in the 1830s and talked about this citizen-led democracy in, in America. Well, that, that thinking, that the term he gave it of civil society, has application in many, many different contexts in developing countries. In many countries, it is non-government organisations, civil society, as a primary way that communities and citizens organise to support each other when government services are weak or absent. So, for example, again, in our nearest neighbours, the PNG and the Solomons, the churches provide 50% or more of the health and the education systems and far more functional uh, services that they provide too than the government folks. 
in countries like Indonesia, civil society really was uh, a key driver of political change and the downfall of the Suharto dictatorship in the late 90s. In Burma, you're seeing a renaissance of civil society, of citizens' support organisations, very, very small, basically community-based groups, providing a whole range of services. But these were snuffed out in the early 60s by General Ne Win in Burma. And you're seeing them recover and recreate now uh, to help communities. And it, it accelerated in the wake of the cyclone, uh, Cyclone Nagas, a couple of years ago. So this is a very significant development. But the Australian government has no uh, framework for dealing with this. It's entirely ad hoc if they want to work with non-government organisations in developing countries or not. Uh, so we argued that they do need to develop a, uh, a policy framework for engaging with civil society and where it fits in. Because if you're just dealing bilaterally with governments, then you're missing a big part of the development picture. Secondly, we wanted a clear focus on for the A program and alleviating poverty and reducing inequality. The Australian Aid Program, uh, under the previous government, uh, it had national interest uh, sort of at the, uh, the foremast, and that had led to a whole lot of um, interesting and problematic uh, uses of aid over the years. And some of them have rightfully had you know, uh, uh, media attention drawn to them and, you know, uh, money for pandas uh, from China and so on, and, um, for Adelaide Zoo. And, uh, um, so we, we were arguing that the primary purpose of the Australian Aid Program has to be to alleviate poverty of people, reduce inequality and help people overcome poverty. A whole-of-government approach is really, really important. The Australian Aid Program uh, is not just delivered by AusAid, the government's aid agency. It's also uh, delivered by up to 90 other federal and state government departments and agencies. And so the proportion of the aid budget will vary from year to year. At the moment, it's about 89% that's delivered by AusAid. But in the years past, it's been, it's been much higher proportion that has been delivered by Department of Immigration for uh, detention centre in or returnee centre in Afghanistan, for example, uh, to return people um, that were deported from Australia. Uh, in Nauru, Australia delivered about 25 million in aid in the 1990s to Nauru. When we created the Pacific Solution and created the detention centre in Nauru, Australian aid quadrupled. So more aid went in five years than had gone in all the previous decade. Uh, to, to Nauru. Uh, in Afghanistan, the Defence Department, the ADF, have been delivering aid projects in Uruzgan province. Uh, primarily, this is part of a larger allied strategy of counterinsurgency to win hearts and minds of tribal leaders. So we uh, build mosques there, we're building... Um, a waste disposal facility in Tarankart. Uh, we built schools. However, technically efficient as the ADF are in building buildings, they are not necessarily good as development workers. And so a lot of these projects are proving to be white elephants because the staff aren't there to go into the schools. The parts aren't there for the waste disposal facility. Locals don't want to send their children to a school that has been built by a foreign army because they know that the Taliban will target that school and try to kill their teacher and maybe injure their children. So, very, very problematic. So, we wanted a whole-of-government approach to the Australian Aid Program. We wanted uh, transparency, much more uh, clarity around what the Australian Aid Program was trying to do, inf publicly available information rather than... Um, uh, media releases on the uh, on various government department websites, including AusAid's. And we wanted evaluation of impact. We wanted much more honesty and transparency. We wanted to let it, let it hang out. If we really want to know what's effective in aid and want the public to have uh, support for aid, 
then we need to know what's working and why, what's not working and why. And let's learn from our mistakes rather than trying to hide our mistakes, which inevitably will be discovered when some uh, tabloid journalist goes ferreting around and then it will be released with shock, horror, headline, millions wasted, you can't trust this, we should, charity begins at home, let's cut back our aid program. So there's an interest in having transparency. And finally, we argued for a rights-based approach. Governments have signed on to the Universal Declaration of Human Rights when they join, the, when a country becomes uh, a member of the United Nations, it's a condition that you respect human rights, and there's treaties and conventions. And we want governments to, the Australian government and the aid program, to help reinforce those obligations that recipient countries and Australia have agreed to in realising rights. Shouldn't be confused necessarily with the strategy of hectoring or lecturing a government. You've done wrong, you've failed to provide education for your people in this province of your country. But it's thinking about the rights of marginalised people and how to involve people who are poor and disabled, women, Indigenous people, children, and thinking about their rights and how to involve them in the design of aid programs because at the end, end of the day, they are the recipients. They are the ones who Australian aid has to make a difference in their lives. And therefore, their rights are very, very important. Many of our members conceive of their work in rights-based terms. So, where do we get? Sorry, I'll wind up. Um, the committee reported in late June and the government considered its recommendations and basically of the 39 recommendations, 37 were accepted. One of the two that weren't accepted was interesting because it was a recommendation that the Minister for Foreign Affairs should have international development assistance included in his title. That one was rejected. But uh, generally, it was, it was not just pretty good, it was very good in terms of what they were recommending. They did recommend a single clear objective on poverty alleviation, lifting people out of uh, extreme poverty and building their capacity, people's capacity. They endorsed a whole-of-government approach, four-year plans. You might be surprised to know that the aid budget varies from year to year. The Aussie don't know what they're going to have from one year to the next because of the, the federal budget process. So they've committed to a four-year plan and a four-year commitment to funding, which is, is, which is very good. Uh, they're setting up an independent evaluation committee uh, to oversee uh, assessment of different parts of all of the government's aid, pro aid programs. They've committed to a new transparency charter to give a higher level of information uh, and accountability to the public. They've agreed to a civil society framework uh, to be done in consultation with uh, non-government organisations. They've called for greater partnership with the Australian community, academics, uh, think tanks, universities, community groups, and looking at ways and mechanisms to actually be able to reach out and work with the Australian public uh, more effectively. They've said that uh, the business community has an important role to play. And they've set up criteria for assessing the overall effectiveness of the aid program. There are some concerns, though, about what's missing. They didn't feel that human rights uh, was a guiding framework for the Australian aid program. They felt there was a connection and uh, human rights should be communicated more through the aid program, but it wasn't going to be in any way part of the design or the thinking of aid. Surprisingly, they didn't really emphasise the Millennium Development Goals overly. They didn't put a high emphasis on reducing inequality. That might seem surprising because uh, it is such a feature of the world we live in, but they sort of argued in an economic rationalist way, well, this is kind of an inevitable outcome of uh, economies developing, some people being lifted out of poverty, that you're going to have inequality. Uh, maybe it's just a realist position, but we, we felt it was inadequate. Um, 
they've set hurdles at a cabinet level to look at the success or lack of the aid program. And those hurdles are at this point unexplained. And so we feel somewhat concerned that that's an out for a future government to, to wriggle out of its commitment to 0.5%. So overall though, there's a lot in there that assists the scale up of the Australian aid program. The critical political task though now is to broaden support for the Australian aid and to explain its achievements and where it's making a difference in people's lives and dispelling some of the myths. I know some of you mentioned that you're going up to Canberra next week to talk about trafficking and also the Australian aid program with politicians and I think this is a key challenge is telling simple stories about where Australian aid is working from a community perspective and many of you would have connections to uh, organisations like Caritas that are making a difference and why you support that because in the face of the shrill talkback uh, anti-aid rhetoric and charity begins at home, it's actually really needed uh, that politicians hear actually there is a large majority of the Australian population that think it's part of being uh, good, a good citizen, good international citizen, it's part of uh, contributing because knowing that we are one of the largest and wealthiest economies in the world, despite the sentiment of gloom that seems to pervade the country at the moment. And in conclusion, I'm leaving you with some, perhaps you may feel unusual um, arguments for supporting the aid program, but this is a hot off the press. It's actually so hot that it hasn't even been finally finished, but it's, it's mythbusters that we've produced, tackling some of the common myths that you're hearing on Talkback Radio or in the, uh, the Herald Sun about Australian aid. Uh, so it's, it's, it's aimed at uh, members of the public but also politicians in Canberra to give them some, some information to enable them to better respond when people are saying, uh, cut it, it doesn't make any difference, it all goes to corrupt regimes. And it, it's all better spent here and charity begins at home. Thank you very, very much.